You are listening to Equilibrium by Peace. My name is Serene Slabbard, and today we're talking to Michael Howey from the Fur Bearers about the organization as well as coexisting with wildlife. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for coming on today. Thank um, you. So let's start off with how did you get involved or started being part of the Fur Bearers? Sure. So I was a journalist for uh, all of my career, uh, all through my 20s. My, I actually started in, at 19, and uh, I had been getting a little disenfranchised with the media world. Uh, being a journalist is not always a comfortable thing. Um, and I wrote a lot about crime and politics and the environment, which is not always a happy thing to write about or a fun thing to write about. And as much as I love being a journalist, it wasn't a place that I was feeling good about. And I had been getting it uh, into some disagreements with colleagues on how things were being reported at the time, very much focused on dogs. And this was when breed specific legislation in Ontario was coming into effect. And I started doing a lot of research on how it was being sensationalized through that uh, or parallel to that. I had also been learning about beavers and coyotes beavers because beavers were being trapped in my community and coyotes because coyotes were present in my community. So all of these things kind of intersected at the same time to being introduced to this incredible world of wildlife, particularly in urban centers, the concepts of coexistence and wanting to do something with my my passion and my skills as a journalist, but not enjoying the industry. And just through a bizarre series of lucky chances, I sat down with Leslie Fox of the Fur Bears, and over time, I did some volunteering and then some contract work and then became a full-time member. That's amazing. Yeah. So leading into that, can you tell us a little bit about the Fur Bears and what y'all do? Of course. So the Fur Bears was founded in 1953, though the actual organization's history goes all the way back to the 1920s uh, and was the formation of the organization was interrupted by World War II. Uh, following that in 53, the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals, or the Fur Bears, was formed. And around the late 1960s, uh, the mission changed from advocating for fur-bearing animals in the wild, or, or trying to just ban the leg hold trap, very simply, um, to starting to look at the greater picture and saying, well, we can't just ban a trap. We have to understand why there's trapping and we have to understand there's lots of different types of traps and we have to educate people and then Another thing that happened was learning about why beavers were trapped so frequently um, and they can cause their damming activity can cause a lot of infrastructure damage, but that there's solutions that don't require lethal management. And the only real roadblock to using a lot of those types of solutions and moving away from trapping is the argument of this is the way it's always been. So the Fur Bears um, very much in its role has done a lot of work on educating communities and of taking information that has not always been available or not always seen and visible and making it public. Examples of that are everything from we've taken the BC government to courts through their conservation officer program uh, or service, sorry, and some of the decisions made by them. We have, uh, we are right now involved in an Ontario lawsuit about a coyote killing contest. We are, we've got a couple of other legal court uh, cases that I, I'm not prepped to talk about, so I'm not going <laughs> to get into good. them. 
But it's a lot of work of that nature, as well as then saying, okay, this community in BC is experiencing difficulty with bears. So the Tri-Cities area will do a lot of work in. We'll organize volunteers and send them bear door hangers, which are educational pamphlets about coexisting with bears, attractant management, and the like. And they send them out to a targeted neighborhood to try and reduce negative outcomes for bears who belong in those areas. Uh, we, we are not trying to keep any wildlife away from their home. We're very simply trying to make sure that their homes are respected, I would say. Uh, and a lot of that work happens through education as well as conservation, advocacy, and research. Um, so that's a really long answer, but it, it kind of sums it up. Uh, we no, also- beautifully. Uh, with fur farms, we've also done a lot of advocacy work. We were involved in uh, really pursuing the ending of mink fur farming in BC uh, in 2021. We've been on that file for several years. Uh, we just sent out a report about fur farming and a current piece of legislation called C247, a bill to end fur farming in Canada. Uh, to every single MP, got a, a personalized copy of a report about it, encouraging their support for this bill. Uh, it's a lot of very high-level policy, in-depth research, and ground-level education. That's amazing. What I what I love is the wording that you you use is coexisting. Um, mm -hmm. It's not about getting rid of them. It's coexisting together. What are some basic steps that someone, I guess, even in a you know, we've moved out into the boons here and we have bears and we have the wildlife yep. and we have to figure out our own systems of coexistence. But what are some of those um, just quick basic steps for people to take with regards to making it a, a safer space for both species to coexist? Yeah, and, and this will be true of both urban and rural areas very frequently. But the absolute first thing to do is what you've already mentioned, and that's find out who your neighbors are. Uh, I've had a trail cam up in the new place I'm living, and it's amazing how many uh, different animals come through this tiny little hole in a fence and run along the subdivision line to the next series of houses they want to be at. It's, it's remarkable. And the same is going to be true in a rural area of if you know who's around, you can start making smart decisions. Uh, step two is attractant management. So when we talk about attractants, that's literally anything that's going to effectively lure wildlife to you. Uh, right now, a lot of sanctuary owners will be aware of avian influenza as a risk and a threat and taking down bird feeders. It's the exact same concept of if we are seeing uh, a lot of coyotes or bears in an area and that's causing a lot of concern, whether or not it's warranted concern is not the point, but that there is concern Unfortunately, the reality is, I shouldn't say a statistic because I don't know that to be true, but it is very frequent. Approximate, yeah. Yes, that wildlife are killed when there are negative encounters between people and wildlife. So if we can effectively figure out who's around and why they're coming to where they're going, it can go a long way in preventing or mitigating negative encounters. And I say negative encounters and not conflict because conflict by definition requires two sides to be participating they both want a thing and both want the other not to have it for instance in this case again whether it's my back garden or your big sanctuary is i want this land to be protected so i can grow something here or keep something safe here and they are hungry and we then start reminding ourselves of something like a fence being an abstract human construct Mm -hmm. a, a chain link fence is of no difference than brambles on the ground to most wildlife. So it's not about just putting up a fence. It's about understanding 
these animals are around, they want a thing we want, and because we're not comfortable with that, we call it a conflict, whereas all it truthfully is most of the time is just a negative encounter. There's no actual harm done to anyone or anything, uh, and there's so many ways to then prevent that, which kind of just keeps going down this list that is truthfully, in some ways, endless. Um, but to, to maybe sort of wrap the point, I'd say, you know, first find out who's around, second find out if there's something attracting them and how to uh, protect or m remove that. In BC with bears, it is very frequently waste based, so your own personal garbage, recycling, compost, and there are all kinds of wildlife resistant bins that you can get. Almost every municipality I know of in BC has some kind of recommendations for waste management in that way, specific to bears. They get Bear Smart Society, the fur bears, we all have resources on that. Um, so it's, it's sort of find out what the problem is, if there's a problem, how can you prevent it, and then make coexistence a daily intention. And this is something that I think is very important. And we heard a lot about during the Stanley Park Coyote issue in the last couple of years that the fur bears was heavily involved in. What ended up happening is people perceiving a sudden shift in behavior. But I can look at letters we sent to Stanley Park, we being the fur bears and others, going back to 2012 about feeding issues. And we found out that there had been no bylaw in place for the city of Vancouver or parks. And we found out there had been no active enforcement because there were no bylaws. And we found like, and it's just all of these stacking issues that didn't crop up overnight. They cropped up arguably over decades. Um, and it might take a bit of time then to realize those solutions as well. And what we need to find there is the patience and creating it coexistence as a daily intention then means that in all of the things we do, we consider coexistence. So barbecuing with friends. Okay, well, what are we barbecuing? Are we going to clean it up? Are there bears around right now? And are we going to create a problem for my next door neighbor? Because, you know, my Satan steak grilled right under their umbrella, which now reeks of pepper, which may attract a bear that's in the area. Just yeah. little thoughts. Exactly. And I think that's the that's the hard thing to sometimes think ahead as 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 creatures of humanity. We we don't think long term ahead. We just think, oh, this is fun to do right now. We don't mm -hmm. think of the implications later on, like what you're talking about with Stanley Park and not having any bylaws in place or enforcement because you can have rules. But if nobody's there to enforce the rules, it's not. Yeah, it's not going to be any use anyways. Uh, and we've also shown we did an uh, we did a literature review, more of the types of work that we do uh, mm -hmm. on the urban it was the feeding of urban fur bearing animals was the specific title. And one of the things that came out of it, which I have seen elsewhere in reference, is that when we want to change people's behavior regarding feeding and things like that, education is not enough, and we need some level of enforcement. Yeah. Um, and I've referenced this in a presentation I did recently, so I got to find that study, but um, it's, it's very much a reality. And I think that's what we see, again, if we were to compare this to something most of us will experience with speeding in a school zone. You can put up signs, you can put up flashing lights, you can have crossing guards, but sometimes you need a guy with a speed gun who can give out $200 tickets to ultimately yes. change the behavior. There has to be a consequence sometimes. With regards to being in the sanctuary space, rescue space, it seems to me, and you can correct me on this, within the farming community, looking at wildlife practices, it's almost like shoot first, ask questions later, or 
with yeah, regards to wildlife management, it doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be as much information out there for bigger farming spaces with regards to mitigation. What's interesting to me is that there is good information out there. It's just very counter to North American colonial culture in mm -hmm. that the way and again, this, this is very true of me as a cis white straight man growing up in the suburbs of Toronto with very, you know, storybook parents and the whole bit. I think there is information out there. There's there is a great study that Defenders of Wildlife uh, um, ran and they were experimenting with in Montana. Right. So we're not talking small town Ontario. We're talking big out west open sky country, Montana, rancher's paradise they would leave out dead stock and surround it with flandry and see and monitor how wolves would approach it. And they had collared wolves and cameras and everything. And they effectively found that by using cowboys, right? So literally ranch hands who ride in a larger scale farm and stay with the herd, using livestock guardian dogs, using proper fencing when applicable, just all of these tools that have existed for so long, but actually implementing them and monitoring them is more effective than predator control, which is what traditionally ranches have done for a long time. In and North predator America. control, you're meaning shooting, correct? Shoot, yeah, trapping and shooting. Uh, yeah. There, you know, in some areas with coyotes, you'll see, um, I won't go into too much detail, but effectively someone in, near, in a farm community may put out a giant bait pile and in the surrounding trees set 20 neck snares and yeah. in a week or two go back and see how many they got. Yeah. And there is no close season on coyotes in Ontario. Uh, there is, I don't think there is one in BC outside of existing WMU management. So it's, it's very alarming how easy it is to do that. And when we've got literally hundreds of years of people doing it this way, and believing it to be right and not just anybody but wildlife conservationists and scientists in the government and you know big names saying nope this is how we manage things it makes it very difficult to shift that attitude but when it does shift the results are remarkable every time with a little bit of effort yes and that's what that study helped with correct Absolutely. It's, it just shows like, okay, well this one method, so hanging flandry, for example, which is red tape or sorry, not red. It's a reflective orange tape, mm -hmm. um, used for marking all kinds of things. And they would hang this in a circle around, uh, dead stocks with dead animal and the collared wolf would approach and not cross the barrier of the flandry. Yeah. And just because it was this novel, bizarre thing, and there's lots of reasons that they, they guess as to why, but ultimately what it shows is for this wolf, that was enough. So what if you used this and you had livestock guardian dogs and you took on these husbandry practices that meant calves weren't being born five acres away from anybody next to a woodlot where you have predators, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we take some of these steps, then we can reduce so many of these uh, instances where conflict could occur or negative encounters could occur. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think statistically that's borne out as well. If you actually look up the number of livestock lost annually to predators, it's minuscule compared to disease and accidents and injuries and things like that. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. And I think that was the hard thing with regards to 
getting onto a more bigger rural property and looking for information out there, which we did. We reached out to your team and you gave us some resources, but finding that compassionate resources where it's not just about killing has been really hard. And that's why it was really helpful to listen to your podcast. Um, it was on Defender Radio, right? Um, yep. Where you were talking about the wolves and doing this medication, but also then finding open sanctuaries, compassionate wildlife practices for animal sanctuaries resource. It was so helpful because it is hard to, to want to live in that coexistence, but also protect the individuals that you want to give a home to. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, the reality is, I think, that is difficult. And this is the interesting way our conversation had started in some ways about this is you can't keep wildlife away. Nature mm-hmm. is always going to win. That's I, If we haven't figured that out as a species by now, I, I feel like we're, <laughs> we're not doing great. I think a lot of um, us are in denial. A lot of us are in mm, denial. That's okay. Um, they'll come around eventually. <laughs> they'll realize it. Uh, yes. Uh, that, it's just a matter now of how dark I take that joke, so I won't. <laughs> I know. Uh, we'll just yeah. let's it's continue. A zone. <laughs> yes. But there are solutions out there, and there are ways to to truly coexist. But again, it has to be a daily intention. It has to be a thought of, am I having an impact on others? Understanding that that impact is negative, and how can I mitigate it? So, in my backyard where we've got tall veggie boxes, we've put up fencing up to about three and a half feet, four feet high because that'll keep out rabbits and a lot of other low critters. But I've got a trail cam set up right now to watch and see if the squirrels are going in, because if the squirrels are going in, then I need to make lids for the veggie boxes, all of which will cost me $15 in a Sunday afternoon, right? Like it's not a, a, an advanced problem. I just made a nice uh, uh, pot stand for my uh, uh, partner outside. So we've got a bunch of veggie pots of lettuce and herbs and stuff that we'll want. And my thought is, okay, well, we'll watch. And if they're eating it, then I'm going to mitigate by raising it. And if they get it at that, then I'm going to put this around it. And if they get through that, then I'm going to do this. Because there's always another step I can take if you're willing to be creative and if you're willing to chase that. Love Not everyone is. Not everyone is. No, and I think it... it No, no, not not everybody is, isn't it? I think it it does come from that content and um, your own moral space of how much value you have on that living being and that's why it's such a important thing to have a compassionate world for everybody and having extending that to wildlife as well right not just for farmed animals absolutely within the vegan community yeah no it's just with regards to your 15 dollars would be possibly 1500 for a bigger space absolutely right so that's that's that makes it harder for some some individuals but i think it really just comes back to what your vision and mission is and and i really 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 appreciate our chat today and um everything that you've shared and where can people go to learn more about fur bearers yes you can find us at thefurbearers.com it's very hard to spell and i'm going to do it quick it's t-h-e-f-u-r-b-e-a-r-e-r-s.com so there are hopefully links for that for everybody yes Um, there will be awesome And you can find Defender Radio and The Switch on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Amazing. Well, thank you again so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for doing this amazing podcast. I can't wait to hear the rest of it.